How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to See Also. I'm Brody Lancaster. And I'm Kate Jinks. This week, we're going to be joined by a very special guest, Alexi Toliopoulos, talking all things finding Jesus. And then we're going to dive into our least favorite place on earth, internet film discourse. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about how you were getting really into balcony renovations. Oh, it's the new place to DIY. I mean, it surely is. Anyway, I needed to update you on my version of it. I built a worm compost farm on the weekend. <laughs> you did so much more than I did. <laughs> no, I didn't. It's it's not a competition, the balcony <laughs> renovations. We're not on the block. Wish we were, but we're not. Um, can you imagine if we were? Anyway, I was about to say, can else. you imagine if we were? I've only watched the first episode and they had to walk so far in mud to get to their houses. I was like, that cancels me out. It's basically a Balenciaga show. <laughs> I'm fully back on that spring balcony stuff and I'm thrilled to be here. I'm just thrilled to be here. You became like the caretaker of many, many new little housemates. Bill, you said something so funny the other day when uh, I said, oh, I'm getting, I've got a box of a thousand worms and you looked at Top Chef, my dog, and said, are you ready to be a big brother? <laughs> Is he? Anyway, that's what I've been up to. And that's like about it. I'm trying to have a nice time and not like kill myself with the side hustles. Mm -hmm. I think we're both kind of making having a nice time, having a capital (laughs) N, capital T, nice time, like a goal at the moment. I think uh, it's necessary. It's easier said than done for a couple of girl bosses. Sure um, is. And in the, in you know, great Kate Jinx tradition, you do have the chicest worm farm possible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dorit would approve. I can't get Jinxie out of my head the seven words that I think the internet has kind of collectively, or at least like a little, a little lesbian leaning corner oh. of the internet. <laughs> I know where this is going. A Negroni. Spagliato. 
with Prosecco in it. Oh, stunning. Oh, stunning. <laughs> oh, my God. Queer internet is losing their shit over this. Truly. And I, I was like, these people are from a Dragons show. The, the Dragons show. The yeah. Dragons show. Well, the second Dragons show. Yeah, 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 which is connected to the – I'm not watching House of the Dragon. Of course I'm not watching it. No, but Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook now have my full attention – but also, mm-hmm. do they? I'm lying. I just want to say, oh, stunning every time oh, someone stunning. orders a spagliato this summer. I was going to say the same thing. Something that I found quite stunning was um, your recommendation a couple of weeks ago for the NTS playlist from the Numero group. I was like not familiar, dug into some, have really enjoyed working to them the last couple of weeks. And the Blondie one is my fave. I think because I'm you know, I'm new to the Numero group. I'm learning as I go, but I know Blondie. And so that's like a safe, a safe spot for me to to dive in. Something that auto played after listening to it the other day was the NTS in focus playlist for Steely Dan. Oh, and so good. I just want to put out the the bat signal to any fellow Danimals that uh it's really good. It's a really nice Friday afternoon TGIF energy. It sure is. I know that playlist very well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No surprise. You know, last week we were talking Hocus Pocus 2 Mm. and, of course, we were talking Rahabaha as we always do. (laughs) More witches. Exactly. I'm kind of excited about this trailer just dropped for the new TV show, which is Anne Rice's Mayfair Witches. It's like the Anne Rice multiverse that's just opened up. And uh, it looks, like, not amazing, of course. Like, of course, right? But it stars Alexandra Daddario from White Lotus, but also Harry Hamlin. <gasps> Harry. He's put his uh, pasta sauce down for a bit. To, we do not talk about this. the husbands. <laughs> Lisa Rinna's going to throw a fucking wine glass at your neck if you keep talking about him, Kate. I better lock myself in the room then, huh? That, they went as a family to a Harry Styles show recently and as they mentioned on, I think, last year's Rehoboha reunion, Harry watched all of Real Housewives during lockdown and they, like, showed a little clip of the video messages that they played for him. So I'm watching that as a Harry fan and a Real Housewives fan being like, it's so iconic that Harry Styles gets to wave at Harry Hamlin in the audience of his concert. The crossover is too much. It's too much. But also there are obviously Rinna dancing her heart out and Delilah Bell and I don't know if you remember, it was one of the earliest seasons that Rinna was on the show and Delilah Bell was coming back from Coachella and Amelia Gray was still in high school and she was like so jealous, could not listen to her sister talk about Coachella because she was so jealous. And she was like, mom, I need money to go to the One Direction concert. And she like gave her $40 or something. And then she was asking for more. Like she seemed like such a brat asking just for so much money. And then years later, Amelia Gray is going out with Scott Disick and on the show, Lisa Rinna says, why couldn't it be Harry Styles or someone like that? So I'm now like imagining Harry watching watching this girl go from like bratty fan demanding money to come to one of his concerts to like dating Kendall Jenner, who is Harry Styles' ex-flings, ex-brother-in-law and her, her mum wanting her to date him instead. Oh, my God, I got... All my pronouns got all muddled up in that. We can only do our best. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Stunning. 
I was quite excited to see that John Waters has had his novel Liarmouth optioned. Uh, so that came out earlier this year. I still haven't read it, actually. I haven't Pathetic. either. But this is the film that he is he making? Because I saw the news that he's making a new movie. Yes. Yeah, so I think Village or Rojo have, Village Rojo have uh, <laughs> optioned it. And so he will be writing and directing it, which is very exciting news because we haven't had a John Waters film in literal decades, uh, way, way too long. And I don't know if you're familiar with the synopsis of this. No, I'm not. All I, you know, I'm just excited about the prospect of an upcoming John Waters press tour. Okay, well, Marsha is on the lam from the airport police, her daughter's sect of trampoline bouncing enthusiasts, and her own mother, who performs cosmetic surgery on pets. A former employee of Marsha's is determined to collect the sexual salary he's been promised for providing a year of free labour, but his talking penis has ideas of its own. <laughs> I feel like John Waters would be a fan of Peter Strickland. Oh, I just really, really hope. Yeah. I really, really hope. So I'm excited about Liar Mouth. Of course, we won't see it for many, many a year. but Because <laughs> he was meant to make a Christmas film called Fruitcake that he was like working on for years. And it I just remember sort of this. Never... Yeah. And every time he did a tour here, he would talk about it a bit, but... It didn't eventuate. He's kind of been living like the Fran Lebowitz lifestyle recently, right? Like became famous so early on in his career that it has sustained just endless speaking tours in the decades since. Yeah, for sure. That's what he does. I mean, that is really what he does. He's much more productive than than Fran, though. He's still writing books, etc. Um, we've got some see also uh, classifieds this week, <laughs> some little updates. <laughs> just a little FYI. We're going to be operating the podcast as usual this month, so throughout October, but from next month until the new year, uh, we're going to be going back to a fortnightly release. I say back to because we did it once and then we're like, no, we want to make podcasts every week. Because um, we're idiots. We're so silly. Go bosses. We are going to be prepping some episodes in advance and getting all of our end of the year, Christmas, New Year episodes ready so that you're, you're going to be hearing from us over that period, that dead zone of a new stuff to listen to. But we're also going to be trying to follow our own advice and rest a little, chase the nice times for the summer break. But, you know, like the set times on a gig venue's website, all of this is subject to change. <laughs> we're also working on our, you know, slate of poodle episodes. And the next one is going to come out at the very end of October for Halloween, Natch. And we're going to be covering Scream 1, Scream 2, and Scream 3. So this is your warning to watch those films, to listen in without spoilers, I guess. I mean, they came out so long ago. We shouldn't really have to do a spoiler situation, but, you know, there it is. We shouldn't have to, but we're going to be talking about every killer in every movie, undoubtedly, and Parker Posey Hive rise up. It's very exciting uh, here today on See Also. We're joined by our only, our second guest ever. Wild. <laughs> anyway, um, we're joined by Alexi Toliopoulos. He is a writer, filmmaker, comedian, podcaster, 
an investigative documentarian of sorts, <laughs> I'll say. Among many other things, he co-hosts the long-running podcast Total Reboot and recently launched the third act with co-creator comedian Cameron Janes in their Finding series. It's a web series, Finding Jesus, which follows their two incredible podcasts, Finding Drago and Finding Desperado. He's also a really dear pal and the yeah. person I turn to every time I need Blu-ray advice or podcast mm -hmm. technical advice. Wow. Welcome, Alexi. My pleasure. My honor to be your sage of wisdom in the two fields I hold most dear to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> we we got all of our intro to podcasting, like podcasters 101 advice from you, Alexi. Is that right? Absolutely. And I even gave you, heck, 201 as well. I put the whole second unit in there because I believed in you so much and this podcast would be great. I'm a fan of it. I listen to it every single week. What's your favorite episode? My favorite episode would be probably anytime the Hog Hive is uh, brought into play. And I absolutely love an episode that you did about one of my favorite movies that Kate actually introduced me to, Nora Ephron's directorial debut. Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie. Why this is my life. life. This is my life. Unfortunately, a very generic title for a very beautiful movie. Did it feel like watching your life as a comedian on screen? It felt like my life as a young mother torn between worlds of looking after her children <laughs> or following her dreams, which is the day-to-day -day life I've lived. <laughs> Alexi, it's so weird to be seeing you on my Zoom screen because I have been watching Finding Jesus every week when it comes out. Wow. And also a little taster of next week's episode, no spoilies, <laughs> but I have watched them all multiple times now. Oh, And I'm wow. very invested in the mystery. That and was you pumping up our views. Thank you so much. It was just me, yeah. Wow, okay. Thank you, thank you. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. <laughs> So you did two podcasts, Finding Drago, Finding Desperado. Now you're finding Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I'm very curious to know how you and Cameron are like finding these mysteries, how they come to you. Or mm. do you have kind of like a little filing cabinet of weird internet stories that you've always been curious about? It's such a good question because I think it keeps changing for us each time. Finding Drago, that was supernatural. Oh, well, I'm, let me put a space between that. That was super very natural. Um, it was not su Maybe it was supernatural how it came to be. For me, Finding Drago was a story that I found and stumbled across on the internet. And I just knew instinctively, like my journalistic instincts I had suppressed dropping out of journalism degrees twice in my life kind of awoken. And it kind of awoken at the right time. I was in film school. I was studying documentary and slowly documentaries like, oh, maybe this is my major. I really like the kind of pick up and uh, shoot style of documentary. And the teachers there, my tutors and mentors, they were like so inspiring for me because they were talking so much about how documentaries should not just be limited to what we see so much on Australian TV, which is like observational documentary. And I found that really inspiring and finding that story is like, oh, I think this is my documentary subject. I think this is what I want to do. So that was just like something I found in the world that broke that bug for me. And then with Finding Desperado, we knew we wanted to make a sequel. We knew we wanted to tell another story. And also with Finding Jesus, we knew that we wanted to tell another story in this model, we kind of go on the hunt for different stories. We kind of look for things, kind of turning through Reddit and stuff and just looking and scouring the internet or scouring books for things. We just kind of keep an open mind and take the blinkers off and just really look for things that we kind of find 
like curiosity. They might not even really be mysteries, you know, like finding Desperado, that only becomes a mystery because we start pulling a thread. Like that's just a fact that's there, that this guy was the youngest filmmaker in the world at one point. But then we start to doubt it. So we kind of go down that rabbit hole. We're finding Jesus. We're in a position where we had these two hit podcasts. We knew we wanted to keep doing it because it feels like our calling now that we want to kind of make these stories in this way and tell these stories in and narratives in reality. And we have like a Google Doc where we had a bunch of stories and we kind of were pitching each other different stories, even to a point we thought, oh, maybe the new season, the new style that we do would be like one episode covers one mystery that we kind of go down the rabbit hole with each. But then Cameron found this Kanye Quest mystery and it's immediately started resonating with us because it speaks in tandem with the first two because those are all about truth and lies. This one felt like it was immediately about belief. And that felt like an extension of those themes that we've been exploring. And then when we found that contact that Mark Bonanno, our dear friend, might be embroiled in the mystery, we thought, oh my gosh, how can we not make this? And we just started pulling and pulling and we're going, okay, there's enough here for at least maybe three or four episodes. And then it just kept expanding and blowing up as we got deeper. Do you have different investigative styles, you and Cam? Yeah, I would say that we do. And we have different skills and different like realms of knowledge. I think Desperado, the second series, is the one that like shows off that the most where because it's about a movie and I have like encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of films. I kind of knew directions where to look and kind of how to use those search models. And even in those like final moments where we're having like this very climactic conversation with a suspect he was extremely knowledgeable about film and was like spitting so much stuff out at us that it was like uniquely equipped for both of us to be talking to this person because I knew exactly what to look up to give Cameron the right answers to throw back at him to like give the information away so I would say that our investigative styles are quite different Cameron is really good at reaching out to people that he thinks could be connected can help out and I'm probably more on the research and then like the interview and like kind of figuring out what we need. And also together we kind of complement like our story nature as well. You mentioned the film background that you bring into the investigations and like obviously Finding Jesus is the first visual version of a mystery being solved. We're seeing you guys, we're seeing some reenactments, we're seeing some (laughs) costumes, we're seeing locations and it's all really fun. And obviously this story kind of like plays into the visual side of things as well but are you like what are some of the movies that you were inspired by when you went into making it the ones that were really inspired by as far as like the documentary aspect goes catfish the documentary that spawned the mtv reality series is one of the most important films for me i saw it just before i head off to film school the first time when it had just come out premiered i think sundance that year you saw nev shulman stamp tramp and you Mm -hmm. said that's my guy that's my biggest influence that guy and that back and that marking at the very bottom of that back (laughs) peeking above his butt cheeks i knew it but that was so much like Awoken something in me where I was like, oh, that's a really cool way to tell a story where it's a narrative, but it's in reality. It's a documentary. It's investigative, but it's not a crime story or anything. It's like a low stakes. The stakes are really personal. It's a really emotional story. And it really signified to me like that mixed media 
approach to documentary where it's just pick up whatever you've got. And that was in the era where cameras were just getting really tiny, but before they were in phones. So all like good ones were in phones. So I had to have like all these weird cameras and stuff and GoPros. I really liked that. And I loved stories through the internet. I thought it was like such an elegant way to like bring a love story or a story that is about a modern relationship that forms over the internet. And I was like, that's like so contemporary it felt so present tense to me and then the other documentaries that really inspire me probably uh stuff that really captures and communicates through genre and i think that's a really important aspect of documentary filmmaking that is probably not talked about that much beyond like film school classes which would be using genre as a communication tool so something like the King of Kong, the documentary about this subculture of gamers that are trying to beat each other to get the biggest, highest score on Donkey Kong, the original arcade game. And that is kind of set up as a good versus evil sports movie. And I think that is such a key to like in to communicating with audiences because audiences interpret every aspect of like visual media as genre. They understand genre. So it's kind of a shorthand that you can access to capture their emotions and speak to them really directly. So it's those kind of movies like that and like touching the void that really capture this genre aspect of documentary filmmaking that I don't think people talk about that much. And The Matrix. The Matrix, of course, my favorite documentary of all time. Like that's the other one. And very early on with this subject, we kind of, we always look at our recreations and the feeling and the tones we create as like movies. So first Drago is so much Rocky and like the emotional filmmaking of Sylvester Stallone. Then the second one, we look at Euro thrillers and like Silence of the Lambs and, you know, uh, the talented Mr. Ripley was a big one. The conversation, those kind of like surveillance Euro type thrillers. And this one immediately, I was like, oh, Cameron, I think this is the Matrix that we're making here. And <laughs> to evolve that from us just thinking of it as a podcast to then going like, we have to make this look and feel like the Matrix to connect with like the deeper themes of this at all times was like the sickest thing ever. <laughs> it was really just an excuse to buy a lot of sunglasses, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was the first thing we bought with our budget. We got a lot of the money from Screen Australia. I was like, I'm buying all the Matrix sunglasses so we could get everyone wearing accurate glasses. A thing that I love is that in one shot over your shoulder, you just see your computer screen and it's just got really tiny black sunglasses <laughs> yeah. lined up. You can see me buying the glasses for the recreations in the show. <laughs> so meta. And uh, all the black latex is to yes, be applauded, really. Of course. It was a dream come true to be donning leather pants for a shoot. I never thought I'd see the day, but to see myself in Matrix recreations, oh, dream come true. You mentioned uh, when you were talking about catfish, which I know is, you know, really special to you. I remember being really surprised by mm. that when once we were all asked on something we were doing together. Yeah, I think it was our favourite movies of the decade was, right? Yeah, and that was your first answer, like, straight out of the gate. I was like, wow, okay, I... <laughs> He always keeps me guessing. But um, you mentioned that there were kind of low stakes involved. And I feel like there is this thread of all these low stakes of your detective series, you know, in all of the findings. But to me, like as a viewer, it feels, or as a listener, it feels really high stakes all the time. It feels like you and Cam are just like 
minutes, seconds away from hysteria at points, <laughs> does it really feel like, do you really kind of G each other up as you're kind of going along in the same way it comes across on screen or on audio? Uh, absolutely. Because for the entire time of making these things, it's our entire life. We don't have an existence outside of these things. We're barely doing anything else. So it's kind of especially making Finding Jesus. We were living in an apartment together in Melbourne. We had no life outside of it. We had like two days off. And um, that's. I think we got dinner a couple of times. That's it. Otherwise, it was investigation mode and watching Seinfeld right before we fell asleep and went to bed. That was kind of it. So it's our whole life. And I think for us, the stakes always have to be personal. Like we make these really personally and we kind of invest our emotion into these as well and figure out like the key for us to like finding a good mystery or a good subject for one of these types of projects is to find the emotional resonance in it with us. And I think Finding Jesus in particular, it was really emotionally resonant because it is this story about belief. And we're at that point in our lives, you know, we're ticking into uh, closer to a new age bracket, um, to put it in a way that is modest to myself without revealing too much about my identity. And so I kind of... We're going through these things we're thinking about, like, you know, I'm thinking about mortality for the first time properly. And there's things in my life that are making me think about mortality a lot more. And I'll admit it, I'm afraid to die. I don't want to die. It's one of the things that I want least to happen to me anytime soon. So we kind of were thinking about, like, those bigger questions about life philosophy, what it means to believe in things and why belief gives us comfort and kind of looking at religion and how religions form in this new world. I think for anyone who is listening to this and hasn't watched the show yet, there might be a question about the title and I just, I'd need to put it on the record. This is not about Kanye West's church or religion, mm. or anything really related to him at all. Who knows? It could be he's the mastermind at all behind the ends. His Likely, face is still up on the board. His face is still on the board as a suspect at this point. Kanye is like barely in this at all. We barely, we kind of have to talk about him at the start because his kickoff point. Mm. And then he almost never appears again, except for, well, he might still be a suspect until we can truly eliminate him. And like considering what he's been up to lately, that's a good oh, yeah. thing for the show. Absolutely. He is sucks. I'm so annoyed that um, we've got a project where his face is in it a few times and <laughs> the name, one of his names is the name, but it's a pun on Jesus, finding Jesus because we're trying to find religion. So that's why it's there. It's a real waiting for Godo. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, he's, I'll put on record, he sucks ass right mm. now. I loved a lot of his music growing up, but it was important to me. Um, but I'm really disappointed mm. in the trajectory of his artistic integrity and his politics has really upset me. Uh, really, one of the more inspiring times in my life was when he and my other hero, Mike Myers, were on TV together during a Hurricane Katrina benefit. And he like spoke truth to power and talked down the racist beliefs and the racial inequality of the president. And now it really upsets me that he um, seems to have turned this page in a, the wrong direction for me. You know, It feels mm. like he's betrayed uh, a lot of his audience and... Uh, what we kind of thought of him to be once upon a time. Mm. It's a really serious answer. I'm so sorry if that's I am, out of I'm like a, a reformed <laughs> Kanye fan mm. and I used to go to bat for him constantly. Mm. And um, 
you know, the work was always good. His work was always mm. good. And now it's really bad and everything he says sucks. <laughs> his music did mean a lot to me at certain points in my life. So he is, it's very frustrating when people uh, that you admire and that you like find inspiration in kind of turn your expectations on their heads of who they are. Mm-hmm. Mike Myers would never do that. He's yet to betray me, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. He won't do it. He won't do it. We need to ask you, Alexi, we we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we had both watched Heart... I think at the time, actually, only Jinxie had watched Heartbreak High. I have since caught up and... I spotted a familiar face in a <laughs> comic book shop, or it's like probably better it's read than dead, right? Glee books, oh, Glee, Glee books, books on uh, Glee Point Road in Sydney, because this is, after all, a love letter to Sydney, Heartbreak High. Of course. Can you tell us a little bit about developing that character of a wow. guy hosting a book release? Uh, well, it was very exciting for me because when this role did come my way, I immediately knew I'd been cast basically as myself in real life in the Heartbreak High universe. And uh, there was almost no preparation because what I do in real life very often is host Q&As uh, for people that have released something into this world. And um, I was really chuffed because I think I'm one of the only people in history to play themselves in Heartbreak High. So I'm kind of like my own multiverse of madness where sometimes I wake up and I think I'm living in a Hartley. I'm a, I'm someone that could go visit Hartley High whenever I want and I don't know who I really am, but I I am still the real me and I, I have, I, I'm in that world. I'm in that universe. And I grew up watching that show. It was like my favorite show growing up. So, of course, I would be cameoing in it as myself. It was a dream come true. Despite being the guy at the signing table, you still mm-hmm. have your, um, it hasn't gone to your head. <laughs> yes. I'm wearing basically my own clothes. So it was really, it was really hard to develop any kind of character. Well, it was just me at a certain point. They let me borrow a jacket. I think that's it. The pants and shoes are me. The jacket <laughs> is from the crew. Um, but otherwise, it's just me. And it was awesome. <laughs> well, it was beautiful work. Beautiful work. I hope you don't get typecast from it, but you know, oh, beautiful yeah. work. I mean, I'm very good at playing myself. So hopefully I do get typecast. <laughs> I'd love to do it more often, do less character work. Alexi, how can everyone who hasn't seen it already, people, you should be keeping up because it's incredible. <laughs> but if not, how do we find Finding Jesus? Well, Finding Jesus is out right now. The first three episodes are out on the Grouse House YouTube page, which is Auntie Jonna's second channel, kind of like a home for alternative comedy here in Australia. Uh, you can find it there. You can YouTube it, Google it, Finding Jesus. You can also go to findingjesus.com, access it there. And also on that website, there's a little tab where you can submit a mystery that Cameron and I could look into in the future, which is something I'm really putting the call out because, uh, yeah, I would love to keep doing this shit. We will have a link in our show notes. And... Look, we're going to be entering what is known as the discourse, capital T, capital D. And mm-hmm. Alexi, are you going to stick around to to enter the fray with us? It is my dream. I love the discourse, especially around movies and especially around popular culture. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. All right, we're entering the discourse. One of the headlines in film circles recently has been all about Blonde, the Andrew Dominic adaptation of the Joyce Carol Oates historical fiction retelling of the life of Marilyn Monroe. I haven't seen it. Jinxie, you haven't seen it. But (laughs) Alexi has seen it. He's done his homework. But also I decided not to. I had to fight my instinct that like sees the internet talking about something and making a judgment on something and I usually will go, well, I'm going to be contrarian and think something different or I need to have a take or an opinion on this. And I kind of just put that to the side this time because I was Mm. like, I don't know if I want to spend three hours of my life this way. Well, I think that's a really healthy angle because uh, the discourse, while it is tempting, it can destroy the soul, the brain, and everything in between. Blondes. Okay, I'll say this. I've liked much of Andrew Dominic's work in the past. I absolutely adore Chopper. I'm wearing a T-shirt for it right now, purely by coincidence. I love the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I love killing them softly. Uh, He's a filmmaker that I think explores the darkness, which is very key to Australian cinema and the voice of contemporary Australian cinema is like this exploration of darkness. And Blonde, while I had anticipated it for a long time, the discourse absolutely turned me off. And it felt like an unholy place to enter, seeing like so much of what I would call American film Twitter really blowing up. And a lot of like this kind of puritanical essence that kind of like bubbled up through it of talking about it's uh, not just as an exploitation film, but like genuinely exploitive and it being quite grubby, grotty, dirty, and uh, while Stephen seems to be holding a lot of beauty, like it's a very aesthetically beautiful film. And I was really turned off. The other thing that really turned me off, the unholy runtime of two hours and 47 minutes. So I kind of avoided it for a long time. I finally went in this weekend for you two. It was for you two that I did it. And I quite uh, i was eventually mesmerized by this movie i was really entranced by anita amasa's performance i found it to be quite spectacular really and to embody this kind of ghostly presence of marilyn monroe as she exists in the consciousness of uh popular culture and how we view american hollywood culture and then dominic's camera being so expressive and so changing of its colors and tones at all times i i found it to be quite dreamlike in the same kind of surrealist realm of like david lynch or 
even like experimental biopics and stuff that we kind of see a little bit more of these days. I keep thinking about this film that Ethan Hawke did called Blaze. He directed it about this. Oh, I small, loved that. Yeah. I loved that film. That's a film that resonated with me a lot and it is often in my mind. And I think whenever I see these experimental biopics that kind of try to take an essence of a person and then do something different with it. I have to have like some kind of respect for. I actually read the Joyce Carol Oates book a couple of years ago. Weirdly, while I was making Finding Desperado, because it's like a weird tangent, we talk about Marilyn Monroe quite a bit Mm -hmm. and this different biographical take on Marilyn Monroe. So I read- Very different. (laughs) Very, very different. So I read Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates. I read Goddess and I read uh, My Story, which is a- autobiography that Marilyn Monroe with another author. So I'd forgotten all of them completely. And then going into Blonde, I was like, oh my gosh, this is resonating with me so much because I, it felt like all these different takes that I'd read of Marilyn Monroe that are exploring her as a different figure of not just a real person, but a thought in popular culture. And I keep returning to this film now, Blonde, and I would be interested in what you two think if you do eventually watch it, because uh, going on Letterboxd, I'm seeing like a bit of a divide in the people that I follow, mm-hmm. where a lot of Australian people and Australian cinephiles and cinematic audiences are responding to it to a lot more positively than overseas counterparts. And like, it's quite a wide divide from divisively completely negative to verging into the realm of like masterpiece, a lot of people Mm. are saying. It's something that's kind of perplexed me and has stuck with me because it resonated with me more than I expected, especially the first little while. It took me a while to get interested and kind of stuck into the film. But by the end, I was really grateful that I had watched it. Well, I'm grateful that you watched it because it meant that I didn't have to watch it. And you talked about the unholy runtime of this film, but I have read at like I have spent mm. way like twice that amount of time reading about Blonde. Like I could have watched it twice. Nothing you've read makes you want to makes you want to like subject yourself to it. I just feel like yeah, I don't necessarily like you, Bill. I don't have to have an opinion on it this <laughs> yeah. time. And this is like a very new, that's a very new stance for me, you know? Like, <laughs> Oh, me too. One of the other movies that I wanted to talk about really quickly is Don't Worry Darling, which I mm. kind of went into going, am I going to hate it as much as everyone else hates it? Am I going to love it in spite of what everyone else thinks? But I just kind of felt like with Blonde, I didn't need to have an opinion. But also something, Alexi, you said about like American film Twitter as a specific mm. subset of people with opinions. I don't want to generalize, but I do feel like there's this trend and it's not new. It's very common. And I think it's something we would probably all recognize from being on the internet where people kind of with the right intentions and with this right kind of like social justice Mm, lens, people seem to sometimes confuse depiction with like endorsement. Endorsement. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so frustrating because you never want to, enter into like a conversation being like you all got it wrong and you had like a simple reading and I'm actually smart enough to get it right but Mm. there are also some things where like you need to show the horror of something to like get to the truth of it or whatever and a lot of people on the internet seem to seem to not want to see the bad stuff because they assume that you're saying that it's right I think that's so much part of it. And I think that's what really turns me off on the discourse a lot and why I often do not participate in it. I watch things. And I don't always share my opinion beyond maybe my letterbox or maybe talking about it on a podcast. 
But I very rarely view films as endorsement of an idea, but more as an exploration of an idea. And I think that there's so much in like now the history of cinema having to like represent ideals rather than explorations of thoughts and explorations of themes and explorations of like the entirely different aspects of the human condition and stuff. And so I think now it's always about right or wrong rather than just like some kind of experiential art of some kind. And I find it like so perplexing. There's so many films that I like that are, you know, conservative films and conservative in their politics. And that's absolutely the opposite end of the spectrum that I am. And I can still appreciate them for what they are without having to go, I like this because I am this belief. Yeah, I feel that way about all aspects of art. I mean, as a critic and as a film curator and programmer, like not everything I put forth Mm. is something that I agree with politically or what Mm. have you. What we were just saying about a movie representing ideas or like the point of view of the filmmaker or a kind of like public general consensus of what's good and bad or right and wrong very much reminds me of Mm. what I think Olivia Wilde was aiming for with Don't Worry Darling, which is kind of like a really nice segue that we did not plan, um, but I will take. Um, Because going into it, you know, she's done all these interviews where she was like, you know, it's all about gender and it's, you know, it's it's about- Men will not come in this movie, only women. not. Um, But also I don't think it's spoiling to say that like, you know, the the sell of the movie is that like this is a world of like Chris Pine's making, like he is somehow Mm. in charge of this mysterious 1950s inspired world. And I'm just like, as if these guys would ever make a world where it's all about female pleasure, first of yeah. all. Also, it would not look that good. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I'm not going to spoil it because, Alexa, you, you, I'm I'm assuming you plan to see it. I've spoiled I it for Jinxie. A- I will plan to see this movie because I, I really liked Olivia Wilde's first film, Booksmart. And yeah, it was cute. I've enjoyed every interview predating this, especially ones that she's hosted with other directors talking about filmmaking as a process and as a form of expression. So I I will still see this, but it does like not it's hard it's hard to separate from the discourse entirely, mm. this film. It's also hard to go into it, you know, we've seen this version of like a psychological thriller beneath like an idyllic mm. world so many times, you know. Truman Show, I guess, is a version of that. Yes. And obviously the main reference point for this is something like Stepford Wives. But I think by this point, like, a film audience is so literate on that kind of thing and so mm. expecting you're going expecting a twist that you're kind of, I don't know, I, I found myself being kind of, like, sceptical of everything I was seeing and there were certain choices that felt really obvious. Like the music felt really obvious to me. It almost felt like my friend remarked that it sounded like they were just playing the Forrest Gump uh, soundtrack. <laughs> like it was like. That would That's be a so cool funny. choice, actually. It mm. would be. And I kind of like thinking back on it now, I almost wish that there were more kind of like glitches in it. Like rather mm. than trying to show like a pristine world, I almost wish that there was like kind of really strange shit that you as a viewer would look at and question because all it is is really Florence Pugh looking at a perfect world, perfect in air quotes, and Mm. being like "Mm," silently like narrowing her eyes at it or like worrying, darling. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I got UBL to spoil the whole thing for me, which is not something I usually do. Usually I see pretty much everything. Mm. Um, I reckon I probably would have seen Blonde had it been in cinemas also. I think that part of it is that it is on streaming Mm -hmm. and it's like putting that time aside when you're at home to watch something is actually kind of difficult and annoying but if you, if it was like a cinema event, you know, I would have gone. Mm-hmm. And Don't Worry Darling just kind of came out at a bad time for me. So I missed it. And I, BL saw it. And then I was just like, please just tell me everything that happens. Yeah. I double checked. Um, I triple checked. And then I sent yeah. you a very long voice note at like midnight after the press screening. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Yeah, we we'll still keep to our embargoes even when it's private. But um, you know, like I liked all the to do around the theatrics the film. around the movie. And liked the spectacle. I don't know that I need to see the film at its core. It's, this is it's just, made me want to keep an eye so- on Chris Pine forever. Mm. Sure, Chris Pine in a good bowed shirt, fat, right? <laughs> but I I just feel like yeah, this is very unusual for me to be. Like, I'd just be like, no, nah, I haven't seen it. No, nah, I'm not going to see it. Like, that's not, not my gonna. usual way of being, but there you go. Yeah. You saying, you talking about how Blonde being on Netflix has kind of affected that, like, desire to watch it. I think the same is true for me. Like, the other night I mm. I blocked out three hours and was like, okay, I'm going to finish, like, a hard day at work and sit down and watch Blonde now. And instead I just made pasta and read, like, a nice YA romance novel. Um, but I did, that did kind of like remind me of something. I'm, I'm curious to know from both of you who, you know, watching films is like a part of your jobs for both of you. And I'm really curious to know what your at home viewing rules are. Do you ever like play on your phone while a movie's on? Or is that like a strict no? Are you, do you eat while you watch or is it like no purist movie time only (laughs) well i would say bl the rules at home are fast and loose i watch a movie probably every single day or close to and most of the time that is at home and yeah a lot of time i'm scrolling i'm checking my be real what my friends are up to in that living moment in their lives but i will say this and i will say this with a bit of jest cinema is a church and you don't have to go to a church to pray. You can pray wherever you want. And I think that is, I mean, it's my religion, is watching movies. <laughs> so it's just as spiritual to be in your home and being enveloped in a great story and a beautiful visualization of that story as it is in a cinema. But it is harder to not be distracted at home because your whole fucking life is around you. It's hard to Mm -hmm. not be distracted. When you go into that cinema, it's like entering a freaking machine, like a time travel device or something where it just takes you to a complete different existence. It's harder to switch off at home. But I do not diminish the experience of people watching films at home that don't want to go to the movies or too scared for some reason to go to the movies or whatever the reason is to not see films in the cinema. But for films like Blonde, freaking hell, I would have loved to see that on the big screen, you know? It depends on what I'm watching. Like if I'm watching Mm. a new film... For the festival, I need to give it my undivided attention. If I'm watching something for the podcast, I'm scrolling, babe. <laughs> We're live chatting. 
Alexia, I did like that you described going to the movies as being with your community. Um, <laughs> and it didn't remind me, like, I kind of, you know, view the cinema as sacred. And I feel like anyone mm. who pulls their freaking phone out or doesn't turn their Apple yes. Watch to theater mode um, mm-hmm. is committing a sin. And wow. Like, a mortal sin. I th- literally. You mean they should be put to death of some kind and tortured well, in hell forever? The girl who sat next to me at the Melbourne first screening of Hustlers and I looked down as she was just watching Instagram stories. Oh, my gosh. And I usually never say anything. I'm very non-confrontational, but I said Mm -hmm. to her, could you please put that away? And she literally said, why are you attacking me? (laughs) (laughs) And recently I spent half of the screening of You Won't Be Alone, a film we talked about a couple weeks ago, Mm. just I could hear these two girls behind me and they were just Mm. talking, talking, talking. And then yep. at one point, like an hour in, I realized it was never going to end. And so oh. I was like, if they do it one more time, if they do it one more time, and I was psyching myself up, my heart was racing so, so fast. <laughs> and I turned around and went, could you please stop talking? And I wow. said it just like that. And then there was a beat. And then one of them goes, yep. <laughs> and it worked for the whole movie. Wow. It would probably not surprise you that I am extremely confrontational in a cinema or in a theatre going mode. Mm-hmm. I will tell people to be quiet, put their phone away, or wake them up if they're snoring, which has happened multiple wow. times in films, particularly wow. at festivals. Mm-hmm. I've got to see also for Blonde. I mean, the C also should be me watching Blonde, yeah. but anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, C in- also the movie Blonde. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Attention, Kate Jinx. Um, there, in 2017, Corinna uh, Longworth did this great series on, you must remember this, uh, Dead Blondes was the name of the season, and there are a couple of episodes dedicated to the story of Marilyn Monroe Uh, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but I found them really, like, genuinely astounding. I have a read also for Don't Worry Darling, which is a piece Mm. that Carl Turner wrote in The Cut all about kind of our culture's enduring obsession with the Stepford wives, and it goes into this really amazing idea of, like, the housewife as technology, and he talks about, like, films that use the visual and spatial language of the Stepford Wives help us to understand our relationship to gender, labour, and technology. And that was just, like, a take on these films that are, like, contemporary retellings of, like, house, quote-unquote housewife stories mm. that I really appreciated and thought was really great. My read also for Blonde is From Sardis to Sicily, the biography of Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn's Secrets, 50 Years After Her Death, by Nancy Maniscalco Miracle, which is uh, a book that inspired Finding Desperado at a certain point. And if you can't find the book, because it's very hard to find, you can listen to Finding Desperado, where we get Pia Miranda, my favorite actress, to read sections of the book out loud. It's time for Also Also's, and Alexi is sticking around to give some of his favorite things of the week. I want to go first because one of mine is a movie that is a movie that classically dudes love, cinema (laughs) guys love, and it also is like three hours long, I think. On Saturday night, I decided to finally watch the Michael Mann movie Heat. Wow. Pacino, De Niro, and John Voight, the trio of all trios. Excuse me, I finally get Val Kilmer now. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a great movie, um, and I just want to say to all the women listening who have been told by straight men in their lives to watch Heat, 
um, unfortunately, they were right, and it's a really good movie. BL, your next step. Heat to the book. You gotta read it. <laughs> oh my god. The extended universe. <laughs> Michael Mann's word, the written sequel to Heat. Wow. He wrote a book or it's a it's a script? He wrote a book. Good on him. <laughs> as far as sprawling crime epics go, there's one currently in the cinemas that will be later going to Netflix, but to get around the conundrum we were just talking about, you should see this in cinemas. It's an Australian film by the filmmaker of Acute Misfortune, Thomas M. Wright. It's called The Stranger. It is my favourite movie of the year. It tore me apart. Watching it in cinemas, I... Felt like I was on the verge of a panic attack the entire movie. And it's a very thoughtfully made and thoughtfully crafted rumination on Australia media and art and film cinemas. Absolute fascination and obsession with disturbed and dangerous men in this country. I think it is like staggering. I absolutely love this movie. I was lucky enough to host a Q&A with Thomas M. Wright this week for Actor. And my... All of this movie keeps growing the more I think about it. Um, it's called The Stranger, and I would really recommend seeing it in cinemas. Yeah, I would too. It's really worthwhile seeing this on the um, big screen. The cinematography oh. is excellent. The sound design is sound really beautiful. Design. And I will say this, Shout Out is playing at Golden Age Cinema at the end of the month. It sure is. <laughs> I've got a garden also. It's the book uh, Modern Nature by Derek Jarman. It's been like oh, a while. Wow. Like we joked at the very beginning of the podcast <laughs> when we first started it that yeah. every week we would be able to like link something back to Derek Jarman, mm-hmm. but um, we haven't been doing it in a while. So I thought that, you know, we should give him his due here in the also also section. Uh, it's He's written this incredible book. Uh, It was published originally in 1991. It's like a diary of him learning to garden and like what he was planting uh, in his cottage in Dungeness. But it's also about his childhood and coming out as a gay man, uh, you know, in the 60s and reflecting on his life, essentially. It's a really, really, really beautiful book and it was um, republished a couple of years ago. And every time I kind of get back into gardening, I pick this book up again. That sounds gorgeous, Jinxie. I have a dessert also. Um, This is something that I made on Friday and kind of enjoyed over the weekend. It's a recipe on New York Times Cooking by Alice Hart, and it's an iced coffee sundae. (gasps) I saw a video of them making it (laughs) on the New York Times Cooking Instagram ages ago and have just – I watched it like it was, I don't know – uh, a show that I love. Like I binged mm. this one Instagram reel oh. um, and it's like it's a homemade ice cream, which I've never done before mm-hmm. um, and was surprisingly like shockingly simple, a condensed oh. milk-based ice cream mm-hmm. and then an iced coffee granita and then the third component, which I only made last night when I served leftovers of this to guests, I was just enjoying it myself up until then, was like a, a coffee syrup with cocoa like a sugar oh. syrup, which I've added to my coffee this morning. And it was like oh such gosh. a treat. This recipe, it says, was inspired by my favorite drink on earth, a Vietnamese iced coffee, mm. but also an affogato. Um, oh. And just as like a little bonus, if you plan on making it, I highly recommend 
getting your coffee, getting actual Vietnamese coffee. I get mine from a small business called Old Saigon who roast the beans here in Melbourne and they have that like signature, I think it might be chicory, but like that very kind of like sweet desserty taste of Vietnamese iced coffee. Oh my god, Bill! I think you sent me to heaven. I was a bit, uh, I was having a moment hearing you describe it's this. So this is good, so unreal. It sounds like it's a lot of components because it's three things, and you have to, you know, put them in the freezer, and then every hour you got to break up the granita so that it doesn't become a big ice block. But once you've done it, then you've got granita in the freezer for as oh long as you god. want. Oh my gosh. You've changed lives with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Alexi, what is your second also? I'm going to read also, and this is uh, for the spooky season. We are in October, which is deemed the spookiest month of the year outside of tax season. And um, this is a book by Claire Coda. It's called Woman Eating. And I absolutely devoured this book. I found it because I wanted something new to read. I want to read a horror book and I love food. So I looked up food plus horror plus book on Google and it was a top link. It had just come out. And it is, far and away, the coolest thing I've read this year. It is a vampire story, and it is told from a perspective of a young woman who is half vampire and half Japanese. And it is about exploring belonging, ethnic heritage, cultural identity through like this millennial melancholy take on the vampire myth. And it is has like these beautiful descriptions of like feeling as interpreted through like vampirism and stuff. It is just really, really fantastic and explores food from this interesting perspective of like cultural heritage, but also the vampiric of like not really being able to eat and digest food and having to like have this different life. I thought it was just absolutely mm. wonderful. And that's uh, Woman Eating by Claire Coder. Well, speaking of hungry, I've also got a cook also. It's a recipe for Hawa Hassan Sukama Wiki. It's apparently the name it translates to to stretch the week and it's essentially just a way to use up all your kale or your collard oh, cool. greens or whatever you have. It's from the Kenyan section of uh, Hawa Hassan's In Bibi's Kitchen, the recipes and stories of grandmothers from the eight African countries that touch the Indian Ocean. It's a very long name for a cookbook, but a very good cookbook. Wow. Anyway, it's a super simple recipe that involves like kale, a couple of spices, some tomatoes, some onions, but it's a kind of delicious way to... Use up that kale that's in your fridge. Mm. I have an art show also. If you're in Melbourne, highly recommend checking out Kirsty Budge's new show. I've got Half a Mind, which is on at Dane Singer Gallery in Brunswick um, until like mid-November. It opens this week. Kirsty is a dear friend of mine and I own a few of her pieces. For my 30th birthday, she did paint me a scene from Vanderpump Rules Um, but her award-winning work is, uh, a little bit different. It's like figurative work. It's often about the act of painting and like unearthing memory and all of the things that artists kind of like dig out of themselves and like put on a canvas for us all to look at and think about. And I'm always just so excited to see the new stuff that she's been working on kind of in secret in her home. Cool. 
My final also is a stream and watch also. I want to give a recommendation at home for the spooky season. This is my biggest discovery of the year. This is a movie called Death by Temptation, uh, and it is directed by James Bond III, an African-American filmmaker and actor. It was a trauma film from 1990, an exploitation uh, small indie studio that made stuff like Toxic Avenger. And Lloyd Kaufman, the head of trauma, said this is the best movie they've ever made. I'd never heard of it before. I stumbled across it, and it's on Tubi. It's on Shudder. And it is one of the most personal horror movies I've ever seen in my life. It is so about, it's on the outset, it is about a succubus preying on men in the African-American community in New York City in the bar scene. And it is so about gender, sexuality, race, masculinity in a way that is so personal. It's really messy because it's like this personal kind of exploration of one's connection to all of those aspects. And it is shot by the legendary Ernest R. Dickerson, who was Spike Lee's cinematographer on Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X. He became a filmmaker with Juice, other great movies as well, and like the horror genre. But this one, it stars James Bond III as well, Kadeem Hardison, and Samuel L. Jackson and Bill Nunn, two of the all-time greats uh, popping up in this movie as well. It's just so... I've never come across this before. It was a total discovery. It is shot so beautifully. But the way they explore these things, it's like unbelievable. And heartbroken to say and to report it to you, James Bond III made no other movies after this, but is really one of the most singular horror movies I've ever seen that is worth tracking down on Shudder or Tubi this spooky season. And I saw someone compare it online to Troma made Moonlight 20 years before Moonlight existed in a succubus movie. I've never heard of this. I am so excited to watch it. It sounds so far up my alley. I Wow, 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 wow. What's it called again? Death by Temptation, D-E-F by Temptation. Uh, my last one is a party also. It's for Melbourne only, but <gasps> I would recommend, I've given you enough time to get into town for it. <laughs> it's Chapter Fest 30. It is an all-day celebration of Australia's, nay, the world's best record label. They have just released, like, everything, every wow. single album I have loved here in this country. And they're putting on a big party to celebrate their anniversary. It's happening as part of Always Live at Northcote Theatre on Saturday the 5th of November. And it's a huge lineup of bands, Essendon Airport, Gregor, Laura Jean, Nozu, Sweet World, Teether, The Canaines and The Native Cat. So it's going to be huge. We'll put tickets in the notes. It starts at like 2 or 3 p.m. or something. So it's a whole day affair. I cannot wait. I'm going to buy all the merch. Yeah. Oh, when is it? Saturday 5th of November, baby. Get oh your God, tickets. I might sneak down. I think I will be there. That sounds so cool. <laughs> Alexi, thank you so much for joining us. Um, tell people where they can find you on the internet. Oh, please, I implore you to watch Finding Jesus on a Grouse House YouTube page. You can look it up, Finding Jesus. Find it on findingjesus.com. And, yeah, please watch it. Please, please, please. It's my pride and joy, my life's work, my mission in this world. (laughs) Thanks for listening to See Also. If you like us, we hope you do. Uh, Please leave us a review over at Apple Podcasts. Give us a five star. Why don't you while you're at it? 
and uh, follow us on Instagram at See Also Podcast. And thanks so much, as always, to Samuel Hodge for our beautiful artwork and Harvey Sutherland for our original theme music. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Stunning. Stunning. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.